And now, if you have your Bibles, would you please turn to 2 Peter chapter 3 and Jonah chapter 3. And I think this is the first time that we've ever looked at the book of Jonah and the existence of Radiant Church. So I'm pretty excited about that. He's one of my favorite guys. But we're continuing in our series, Letters to the Exiles. Actually, just one more week left after this. I will get done in 12 weeks what I planned on doing in 8, which is a new record for me. I'm getting a little bit better at this as time goes on. But it's been looking at the idea of how is it that we live as the church, a colony of heaven, in the culture of death? How is it that we stay strong and living according to the culture of the kingdom of God instead of being influenced and swayed by the culture that we live in? And Peter's been writing and telling how it is that we practically live this out in our lives. And this week, um, as I was preparing for this, I was thinking about my son, Eason. He's three years old now, and when he got to the age of where I thought he was old enough to understand this, I sat him down one day, and I got down on his level, and I looked into his eyes, and I said, Eason, there's something really important that I need to tell you, and I really need you to remember this, so can you listen and pay attention? He's like, yeah, Dad, he's looking at a bug. You know, he's not really paying attention. I'm like, no, this is really important, Eason. He's like, what? I said, I want you to know, and I want you always to remember that I love you, and I always will. And I thought it was going to be this great hallmark moment. He was going to cry and hug me. He didn't. He just kind of looked at me, and, and he pondered this, and he's thinking this through in his mind. He says, you'll always love me? I said, yes, he said, I will always love you. He says, you won't even stop loving me for a little bit? I'm like, no, not even for a little bit. I am always going to love you. He said, what about when I'm bad? Like, yeah, Eason, this is what you have to understand. It doesn't matter if you're good. It doesn't matter if you're bad, if you're happy or you're sad, what you've done, what's been done to you. I will always love you. Nothing can change that. This is the one thing that you can count on is that I am always going to love you. And so then he looked at me and he gave me this big smile and he gave me a big hug finally. I was like, now what did I tell you? And he's like, what? I'm like, okay, <laughs> I love you and I always will. And I tell him this every single day, and I tell Brielle now too, I don't think she understands it all, but I tell them this because it's so important that they know this because what you believe shapes the way that you live your life. Yeah. See, one of the things that we have as people is there's this need in every single one of us for love and for acceptance, yeah. and you will find a way to receive it. You cannot live your life without a sense of love and acceptance. Every single one of us has that. And so if we don't feel loved and accepted, we'll start looking for it in places where you cannot find it. And Satan will tell you that you have to compromise who you are, that you have to compromise what it is that you've been called to be so that you can find love and acceptance from people who don't really love and accept you. And if my kids don't know that their mom and dad love them and accept them unconditionally, then it's going to lead them to do other things in their life that are going to lead them to destruction because there is this need that we cannot get rid of. It's in every single one of our hearts for love and for acceptance. And so now when I ask Eason, I'm like, hey, Eason, what did I tell you to remember? And he says this, he goes, I want to hear it again. <laughs> and I'm like, all right, I love you and I always will. He just smiles. He's like, I love you too, Daddy, and I always will because you're my son. And I'm like, no. <laughs> you're my son, but I'm glad you love me anyways. <laughs> See, there are things 
that we need to remember. There are things that we need to keep hearing again and again because when we hear it, it brings life into us. It stirs something up inside of our soul. It gives us encouragement. It changes the way that we live our lives. But there are also things that if we forget, if we don't remember anymore, then it's going to lead us to do things that we never should have done. Instead of living in the joy and the peace and the blessings that God has called us to, we're going to live chasing these things and throwing them all away. And that's why Peter now, he's writing to the churches, and he's saying that you need to remember these few simple truths. And so in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 1-16, through 16, he says, This is my second letter to you, dear friends, and in both of them I tried to stimulate your wholesome thinking and refresh your memory. I want you to remember what the Holy Prophet said long ago and what our Lord and Savior commanded through the apostles. Most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forgot that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command, and he brought the earth out from the water and surrounded it with water. Then he used water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some think. No, he is being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found to deserve judgment. Since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire, and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised, a world filled with God's righteousness. And so, dear friends, while you are waiting for these things to happen, make every effort to be found living peaceful lives that are pure and blameless in his sight. And remember, our Lord's patience gives people time to be saved. So here's what Peter's trying to remind the church of, is that this Jesus that we have put our faith in, this Jesus who we believe to be the Son of God, who came and took on human form, lived as a peasant amongst us, served us, who went to the cross and on the cross took on the sins of the world, paid the penalty for them, was dead, was buried, was raised from the dead, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. He's coming back. He hasn't abandoned the world He is coming back, and when he comes back, he is going to bring full justice to the world. When he comes back, every wrong will be righted, every tear will be dried, death and sickness will be forever put away, and he will reign and he will rule over all things forever. There will be a new heaven and a new earth that is perfect, created exactly as it was always supposed to be, and we will reign and rule with Christ as his family from now into eternity. Yeah, that's exciting. I'm I'm pretty glad about that. Personally, that works out pretty well for me. That's the hope that we have. I mean, Paul talks about this. If we don't believe that Jesus is coming back, then 
Like, we're supposed to be despised above all people because we are just sacrificing for nothing. But Jesus is coming back. Jesus said he was going to come back. The prophets prophesied he would come back. The apostles said he would come back. There is agreement. Jesus is going to return, and it is going to be a great time for us. And we of the church, we need to remember this because our faith is built around this central point, that our king is coming, that the way the broken world exists now will not be forever. It will be restored. It will be remade. It will be new. It will be perfect. And it needs to really just become a part of our everyday, the way that we live out our faith, the way that we think, the way that we move, the way that we act. It all has to be based around this idea that Jesus is going to return. And then based on this, uh, Peter then goes on to say, these are a couple of things that we need to remember about the return of Jesus. And the first thing is that there will be scoffers. Now, there are people who will tell you that you are absolutely insane for believing that Jesus is actually going to come back to the earth. There are even uh, people in some of the seminaries and writing books who are, you know, you think they're Christians, but they're saying that Jesus won't come back, that it's, you know, it's all this metaphor for everything, and that we as humanity, we're just all going to figure out how to live together, and people are going to stop being bad. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, I can't even get the first graders in a class to hold hands and walk down a hallway. I mean, that's a simple thing. How do you think that we're all going to be sitting around singing Kumbaya together? There's going to have to be something that's going to happen. Like, our, our hearts are going to have to be remade. It's going to take the return of Jesus who will put away sin once and for all and restore our nature before we can ever live the way that God created us to live. But people will look at you and they'll be like, so you really believe Jesus is coming back? All right. Well, good luck with that. And this is why they say, you know what, you are wasting your time living your life following Jesus. You are wasting your time living according to the Christian ethic. You are wasting your time serving in your church, giving your money, all these other things. Like, it's just a waste because there is no Jesus and he is not going to return. And their best argument for that is, well, he hasn't come back yet. And that's what they say. They're saying, you know what, since the time of our ancestors until now, the world is the same. Nothing is ever going to change. And this is what Peter's dealing with as he's writing to the churches. Is Jesus, uh, there are a lot of witnesses that saw him, like he ascended into heaven, and they're like, wow. And the angels announced that he's going to come back just as they saw him uh, ascend. He'll come back on the clouds. And so it started this period, what they started calling the last days. And that was referring to the time period from when Jesus ascended into heaven to the time when Jesus will return. Now, nobody knows how long the last days are going to last, but Jesus' ascension into heaven marked the beginning of this time period that we call the last days. They don't know when he's returning, they just know that he is, and so we live our lives accordingly. Now, 30 years have passed since this happened. And some of the apostles and some of the early Christians, some of the witnesses of this have started to die. And they think 30 years is a long time and Jesus still hasn't returned, but you guys are all still saying he's coming back. So it's like, oh boy, guess we better get to church because Jesus might come back. And this has made something that's even harder now because now we're, it's not 30 years past this event. It's now 2,000 years have passed since Jesus left and we started looking forward to the return of our king. And it doesn't help our case that we have all of these people writing books all the time predicting when Jesus is going to return and holding all-night prayer vigils and selling off their stuff. Like, if you want to make yourself look like an idiot to the world that's around you, go ahead and predict an event that Jesus himself said nobody can predict. If you think you know when Jesus is returning, 
you are disagreeing with Jesus. So let's stop doing crazy stuff like that. But the fact that Jesus hasn't returned yet doesn't mean that he isn't going to. One of the big questions that people always ask me, uh, scoffers and believers who are sincere followers, is why is Jesus taking so long to come back? Why has it been 2,000 years? Why is he waiting so long? There's so much suffering and sin and evil in the world. Why is he allowing this to continue? Uh, like, doesn't he know what's going on? And yeah, Jesus knows exactly what it is that's going on in this world. And God isn't slow. He's patient. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what we have to remember. See, we have a very different idea of time than God does. We are finite beings. We have a beginning and our life will have an end. We exist in the field of time. God isn't like that. He has no beginning. He has no end. He's infinite. He exists outside of time. You know, when I was a kid, I remember my grandparents had this home on a sports lake about two hours north of where we lived. And as a three and four year old, that two hour drive seemed like eternity. My parents were like, we're almost there. I'm like, how long? Like another hour. I'm like, that's not almost there. Like, I'm going to grow old, to have a family, and to die in this car before we get there. Two hours is an absolute eternity when you've only been around for three years. But now in my 30s, a two-hour car ride, you know, that's nothing. We just, the car finally just got warm, and now I'm there. Or look at summer. This is the last weekend of summer. It's sad, it's depressing. But remember how fast summer, or how slow summer used to go when you were a kid, when you had summer break? Summer was infinite. It was endless. And now it seems like it just started and it's already over because the older we get, the quicker time begins to pass. And so this is what God says. He says, you know, a day for me is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. So if Jesus was just going to be gone for two weeks, that's like 14,000 years for us. We're only on day two. I hope he doesn't wait another 12 days. But the thing is, we can't judge the way that time passes based on our so small. I mean, if we live 80, 90 years, that's a ripe old age. That's a blessing. God's infinite. The way that he operates is very different than the way that we operate. You see, God is very aware of everything that's going on in this world. Now, we want God to return because we're sick and tired of seeing the corruption. We're sick and tired of seeing people abused and oppressed. We're sick and tired of natural disasters and, and all of these other things. We look at the refugee crisis. It's like, why is all of this stuff going on? Jesus, you can end it all. All that you have to do is come back and put everything right. But here's why he's being patient. He says, God doesn't want destruction. He wants repentance. This is what God wants to provide for us. You see, the sin that we see in the world, we can all agree, there are certain things when you look at, you know, domestic abuse, child abuse, when you look at sex trafficking, it's like there must be justice. This can't go unpunished. There has to be a moment where there is a reconciliation. This cannot continue to go on forever. And when Jesus returns, he is going to bring justice to all of the world. Yeah. And that's not going to go well for a lot of people. And so that's why he says that I'm being patient and I'm allowing time to pass because what he wants isn't for destruction. God doesn't want to pour out judgment on us. He wants to pour out his mercy and his grace on us. 
He wants us not to be judged. He wants us to be a people who repent and come to a knowledge of him, who receive the righteousness that Jesus has to come, that receive the forgiveness of sins that Jesus bought for us on the cross. That's what God wants for us. He doesn't want destruction. I mean, think about this. He sacrificed his own son so that we could be saved. For those of you that have kids, is there anyone in all of this world that you would be willing to sacrifice the life of your child for? I couldn't do it. The love that I have for my children, and then I look around and say, you want me to sacrifice my life for someone that has done these sins, that has done these horrible, terrible things for someone that's rebelled, someone that's my enemy, you want me to lay my child's life down for that person? I don't have that kind of love inside of me. But God does. And he looked at us, and he didn't despise us in our sin. He didn't say, I'm going to judge you, I'm going to destroy you. He said, I'm going to make a way for you to be saved by laying down the life of my own son for you. The God who lays down the life of his son is not a God that wants to destroy you. He is the God that wants to save you. He bankrupted heaven. He gave up his everything. Because he wants us to be led to the place of repentance. And you know what? Honestly, when I look around at the world, and it's like, you see the hurt, you see the pain, you see the destruction. And you want it to end, and you wish that Jesus would just return now. But you know what? I'm so glad that Jesus didn't return before I made my decision to repent and to turn my life over to him. I'm glad that he was patient. I'm glad that he didn't want to destroy me. I'm glad that he wanted to save me. And here's why Peter is saying all of this. This is what he's trying to remind us of. This is what he's trying to stir up inside of us. Is this remembrance of the way that God operates. A remembrance of what God's will is. Because what happens a lot of times is as a Christian, once you're delivered from sin and you begin to see that the way that you were living only led to destruction, that it only led to heartbreak, that it only led to distance and the breakdown of the relationship between you and your heavenly father, and you begin to hate sin because you see what it did to you and you see what it's doing to so many other people. I mean, you just begin to despise sin and you absolutely should. But a lot of times when we see sin in other people, it stirs up a judgment inside of us. And we look at someone and we're like, God, look at how wicked that person is. Like, God, you need, to, you need to come and you need to judge this. You need to bring destruction on this person or on these people. You need to, to come up and you need to fight them. God, you need to get rid of this because the sin is so terrible and it's so wicked. But Peter's reminding us of that's not the heart. That's not the motive. That's not the nature of God. That's the Jonah syndrome. Here's one of my favorite prophets in the entire Bible. You guys all know the story of Jonah, that God says, I want you to go to the wicked city of Nineveh, and I want you to tell them to repent, or else the city is going to be destroyed. 
And he's like, no way. So he gets on the boat to Tarshish. He's going the opposite direction of Nineveh because he does not want to go to the city. And you guys know that the storm comes up and it's going to destroy the boat. And Jonah's finally like, hey, we're in this mess because of me, because I'm disobeying God. So just throw me over the boat and everything's going to be okay for you. So you throw him over the boat and he's just sinking down to his death. He's like, all right, at least I didn't have to go to Nineveh. And a whale comes up and swallows him, takes him to the shore of Nineveh, vomits him out onto the shore of the place that he's supposed to go to. And then finally he's like, all right, God, I, I guess I will go and do this since you provided me with the, you know, the limo service straight to my destination. You know, I believe God gives you free will, but sometimes he knows what he needs to do to get you to make that decision. Like swallow you up in a whale for three days. And so here's what happens in Jonah chapter 3. It says, This time Jonah obeyed the Lord's command and went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. On the day Jonah entered the city, he shouted to the crowds, Forty days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. The people in Nineveh believed God's message, and from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and put on burlap to show their sorrow. And when the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying, he stepped down from his throne, took off his royal robes, he dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. And then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals or your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. People and animals alike must wear garments of mourning, and everyone must pray earnestly to God. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. And when God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind and did not carry out destruction that he had threatened. Look at this. You know, I put a lot of time and a lot of thought into preparing my sermons. I have points, I have illustrations, I have stories. I, occasionally I'll try to make a joke. And he just goes there, puts no time, no thought, no preparation, just says, repent. That's it. In 40 days, the city is going to be destroyed. Drops the mic, he's out. And the entire city repents. Even the animals are fasting and wearing mourning clothes. That's, I mean, the whole city repents and decides to follow Jesus, and God just spares the city. Now, if you're Jonah, you've got to be like, that was awesome. I just gave the world's shortest, worst sermon, and the entire city now has repented and is following God, and God isn't going to destroy them. But this is how Jonah responded. This change of plans greatly upset Jonah, and he became very angry. So he complained to the Lord about it. Didn't I say before I left home that you would do this, Lord? This is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a merciful and compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. You are eager to turn back from destroying people. Just kill me now, Lord. I'd rather be dead than alive if what I predicted will not happen. Like, this is one vengeful, angry little man. He is mad at God because God has poured out his mercy. He wanted to see these people killed. Because he looked at them and the sin of the city and their wickedness. And he's like, God, I want you to judge them. I don't want you to save them. God, stop showing your love and your faithfulness and your mercy to other people. But God's made quite clear what his heart is. The question is, where's our heart? Are we like Jonah? 
of where we don't just despise sin, but we despise the people who are living in sin. And because of that, we want to see God's judgment on them. We want to see their destruction. We want to see them brought low. Or are we like God, whose heart is so for his creation that he laid down the life of his son to save them and to redeem them, to make a way for them to enter into repentance? See, it's easy for us to, to have a heart for the abused. But do we have a heart for the abusers? When we look at the oppressed, we say, God, would you rise up and would you defend them? But do we have a heart for the oppressors of where we're praying for them and saying, God, would you change their hearts? God, would you show your goodness to them? God, would you lead them to the place of repentance? Over you're speaking life and mercy, where you're saying there's something more for your life that you can turn from this. And there's a God who loves you so much that he can free you from the, the bondage of sin that you live in. Or are we looking at people and saying, God, what they've done is so bad that they deserve to be destroyed. You know what I want for my city? I want that Nineveh moment where every person repents of their sin and they come to Jesus. Not just some people, all people. Not just the women that are being beat. I want the guys that are beating them to come to know Jesus. Not just the people that are struggling with addiction to drug. I want the people that were pushing the drugs on them to come to the place of where they know Jesus. I don't want to see anybody destroyed. I want every single person to come to the place where they recognize God's love and his mercy for them. Because here's the thing. There's no classification of sin. What sin did was it separated us all from God. We all became those who are worthy of God's judgment and his wrath. We all deserve death. It says that if you're guilty of breaking one aspect of the law, that you're guilty of breaking it all. Amen. When God looked at me, he didn't say, hey, that guy's not a sex trafficker, so he's better than someone else. No, I was just as guilty, just as sinful, just as far from God as anybody else has ever been. But God had great mercy and compassion on me. There were people who were praying for me that I would have the revelation of God's goodness. There were people who were sacrificing and laying themselves down so that they could see Christ formed inside of me. And that's what God has called us to do for all people. But it means that we need to have a change of heart. Because it's easy sometimes to love the victims, but it is hard to love the victimizers. But if we want to be the church that reaches the city, if we want to be those, that whole idea of plus one, if we want to see every seat filled, hands raised before God, worshiping him and praising him, if we want to see people having to stand up because there isn't room for them, because people are encountering the presence of God and they're being changed by him, it means that we first have to have the change of heart so that we match up with the heart of God, where all people are loved, all people are welcomed. No one is so far, no one is so bad, no one has had stuff done to them that disqualifies them from God's love and his grace and his mercy. Are we willing to lay down our lives for our enemies? Because that's what it takes. And before God will give us the fulfillment of that vision, we have to have a heart that lines up with his heart. Would you guys stand up with me this morning? So my prayer isn't Jesus come soon, even though that's what I want so badly. When I see how, heart, how broken and hurt this world is, my prayer is always, Jesus, just a little longer. Because we have so many people 
that need to come to know you. Jesus, just a little longer. Jesus, more pouring out of your Holy Spirit in our lives to empower us to do this ministry. Jesus, more of your heart, more of your passion, more of your strength, so that we continue to be used to reach the lost, the hurting, and the broken. All of those who are living as slaves of sin. And this morning, let's just be quiet before God for a moment. We offered him a sacrifice. We've been waiting on him. And now I'll say, God, would you come? And would you speak to our hearts? And God, would you reveal to us if we've been harboring hate, if we've been judgmental, if we haven't been loving people, God, would you reveal that to us? God, would you forgive us of that? God, we repent of our hard hearts this morning. God, would you fill us with a love for all people? We would lay our lives down for them in the same way that you laid your life down for us. We want the heart like Jesus who said that he was moved by compassion for the crowds. And it was out of that compassion that he ministered. There might be some of you here today that just like I told, tell my son every morning and every day, like, I love you and I always will. This morning, you need to hear that from the Heavenly Father. And this is what he wants you to know. He does love you. He's always loved you. Before you were, he loved you. He created you with purposes and with plans. He created you with a dream and a destiny. And he laid down his own son for you. That's how much he loved you. That's how accepted you are by our Heavenly Father. He paid every price. He removed every obstacle so that you could come now and that you could enter into a relationship with him, that you could have all of your sins forgiven, all of your guilt and your shame removed from you, and that now you could live as a son, you could live as a daughter, filled with the Holy Spirit, encountering God's presence every day. And if that's you this morning, and you want to re just receive that love from God, if you want to follow him, if you want to repent because he has delayed his coming so that you could come to know him. This morning, would you just slip up your hand with me as your way of saying, that's me. I want to know the Father. I want his repentance. Thank you. Let's pray this this morning together. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you that your will isn't destruction but repentance. Thank you that you would lay down your own son for me. And this morning I repent. I turn from my old life and now I follow you. Forgive my sins. Fill me with the Holy Spirit. God, make me aware of your presence. Speak to me. Fill me with new life. God, strengthen me to follow you and show me the life that you've called me to. From this day forward, I follow you. In the name of Jesus, I pray.
Amen.